Drive Time 91.3 Always on the cutting edge What's the Cape Drive Time? Welcome back to the show. 0829-913-913 is uh, the WhatsApp line. 082-913-913 will get you there. The International Criminal Court in The Hague, the ICC, has found Dominique Ongwen, an Ugandan former child soldier, guilty of crimes against humanity and war crimes. The case against Ongwen focused on uh, atrocities committed at four refugee camps in northern Uganda between 2002 and 2005. But in its judgment, uh, um, says our guest, um, the judges ignored the perpetrator's background in its guilty verdict. Online for comment is Associate Professor of International Law at the University of Denmark, Dr. Kirsten Bree Carlson. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Now, when we have a look at this uh, situation, you've certainly raised some interesting questions. Um, just give us the background to Dominique Ongwen, because, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was a big investigation. Uh, it took a long time for um, him to be found guilty. No, that's absolutely correct. He is um, he is the first finished case in what was an early, a very early ICC set of investigations, which had to do with atrocities that were committed in Acholiland in northern Uganda, and that um, was always a, a bit of a a bit of a problematic uh, area for the ICC because there again, uh, on the one hand, you had rebel groups who, like the Lord's Resistance Army, that was who Angwin fought for, led by Joseph Kony, who of course were committing terrible atrocities. But um, the Ugandan army itself was has been accused of committing several atrocities. So you had in this in this space uh, several different actors. But when the ICC got involved, uh, in order to have cooperation from Uganda, really the focus was on the rebel actors. So in a sense, from the very beginning, there's been some tension about whether or not by by cooperating, the regime and the regime's responsibility for atrocity crimes was being overlooked. And of course, the ICC has come out on record and said, you know, they they have um, they have they have jurisdiction and they are investigating. And so, further there could be further indictments. But one of the things that we've seen over the course of the ICC's existence is, in fact, it's quite difficult to indict members of a regime, right? Because you need the cooperation of the country in order to be able to investigate. Uh, you need the regime members to cooperate, to come to The Hague, and then to not use their power to eliminate witnesses. This is something that we saw in the Kenya cases. So this remains um, a, a pretty problematic element of this entire investigation. But yes, absolutely, this is one of sort of the, the first moves the ICC made as it came online in the early 2000s, these investigations. And then the actual case against Angwin went on for several years. So we're talking a, a massive number of days of hearings, many, many, I think more than 4,000 victims, uh, many, many documents. So certainly a huge effort on the part of the court. I mean, of course, and you allude to it in the article that you've written, that uh, many of the families that had been af uh, um, affected were in tears 
Um, you can't yes. jump up and shout and rejoice, but they were in tears and deeply moved by the guilty ver- verdict on Dominique Ongwen. Yeah, that's correct. And I think one of the things that many people, I mean, the case has been followed for a long time. It's such a difficult case because, of course, he's a former child soldier who was himself abducted. So he's a victim before he becomes a perpetrator. So there's always been a a great deal of discussion of this particular individual. There are many many indicted members of the Lord's Resistance Army who aren't in exactly this position. But for him, the fact that he'd been a victim first uh, was something that everyone was watching. How will the court deal with this problem? But one of the things the court did in this case that was quite distinct was they really kind of, they, they gave a lot of attention to the victims. The court has been criticized in the past for not paying enough attention to victims. Where are the reparations, right? Where Where's the space? This is supposed to be international criminal law. is supposed to recognize uh, atrocity crimes and suffering, which should sort of structurally put victims in the, in the center, should make them feel empowered. But too often victims seem to nearly be an afterthought, where the law is driving something to process the judges, but where are the victims? So the fact that victims' names, the, the names of known victims were read out in court, that is, as I understand, it's a first that that's happened, and that seemed to be that many people have commented precisely on that, right, that this is something the court is deliberately doing. It has now, it has a whole unit on, um, on working with victims. It's trying much more to be aware of questions of reparations and how they can assist, how the court itself can assist in, um, in a drive to, to kind of create the funds that can be used for reparations and identify where reparations maybe might be most useful. So, again, that's a shift in focus that I think uh, certainly court watchers, there's people on the legal side like me, were uh, really called a lot of attention to. And what, what I hear from people who follow this was that, in fact, that was very meaningful to, to victims, of course. So that is, that is a change. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what it does, it gives a human face to what's been happening. Um, uh, I, I've done some reporting in crisis and conflict zones, and um, a, a big failing of us in the media is sometimes we're just dealing with numbers, and the minute you give a face to the conflict, it becomes a totally different scenario where people can actually start to relate to it, because whatever happens in the world happens to real people. People who've got parents, mm-hmm. people who had parents, people who've got brothers, sisters, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I completely agree, and I also think one of, the, one of the strongest and, in a sense, best aspects of international criminal law is the power it has to change a notion of tragedy to one of crime, right? So instead of thinking of, well, it's very, un- it's it's unfortunate, it's very sad for these people who live in these remote areas that they didn't have safety, that their children were abducted. That when we hear these stories, we hear the details of these stories, I think it invites us to think of what it actually means to live like that and 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 why it is we call an atrocity an atrocity, right? So we go from thinking of these kind of conflict-based atrocities as something like an earthquake, like you can't control when an earthquake hits you mm-hmm. and and what happens to you happens to you. And instead, we start thinking of this as something that's wrong, that can be changed, where we can find accountability, and that, that somehow we might be able to deter in the future. And I completely agree that the power of that message, often it's necessary that we see the particulars of people. We think about what it means for the people who are living uh, in these ways, who are subjected to this kind of violence, what it means for them. 
If you just tuned in, Voice of the Cape Drive Time, we're having a chat about the International Criminal Court in The Hague, finding Dominique Ongwen, an Ugandan former child soldier, guilty of crimes against humanity and war crimes. Terrible things he did do indeed. But it does open up a lot of other questions, and our special guest, Dr. Kirsten Bree Carlson, assistant professor, in fact I'm calling a professor, doctor or whatever, a University of Denmark. But um, there's something that, that you write which I think gets to the to the crux of the point that you are trying to make. You say, many had wondered how the ICC would address Ongwen's background in its verdict. How would the court weigh between the nine-year-old boy who survived abduction and flourished in a brutal environment and the adult Ongwen, now 46, acting with full volition and independence, what role would his status as a child victim play in the court's determination regarding his liability as a perpetrator? It's a thorny question, isn't it? Yes, indeed. And to not to not make it too difficult, but one of the things I find is thorniest and most interesting is that it's not simply a, a moral question or even a, a sentimental question, but it becomes a legal question. So we often say that if I do something very terrible, uh, but then there are sort of, there's some sort of contextualization to this terrible thing I've done, that you might maybe take account of it at the sentencing stage. So perhaps um, something very bad happened to me, and so that should be understood as a mitigating circumstance when it comes to my punishment. But typically when we think about liability or guilt under law, we try and keep things in a sense cleaner. So we say you know, murder has a certain set of notions of intent. It's you, you mean to do it. It's intentional. Manslaughter usually is something that's more accidental, right? And so we have these different gradations in law that recognize how we attach liability and guilt to what we imagine is happening inside a person or what that person's acts tell us about the thing that they did. And so one of the things that's difficult in international criminal law, this is the, what I try and, and, and dig into in a sense in the article, is that international criminal law does not have very good tools to make the kind of distinctions that we have in domestic criminal law of the various ways that you can find someone, for example, guilty of or liable for the death of someone else. Those different gradations between murder, manslaughter, etc., those are much harder to pinpoint and they're much harder to define uh, resolutely and uh, and repetitively at international criminal law. So this, in a sense, was what I thought was really interesting about the case, not just would the, could the judges take into account his background, because of course people were constantly talking about his background in, term, in these moral terms. How should we understand this person who himself was a victim who becomes a perpetrator? But rather legally, is there any way to legally couch what it is he did as an adult based on what it is that he learned as a child? And, and it's not just academic because we often say when we think of why the state has the right to punish us, we think about deviance, right? We punish deviance. We punish those who act outside of what's accepted. So we assume there that we have a shared set of community morals. But what does it mean when you have someone who's raised in a different kind of community? So that's what I think the kind of the legitimacy of the right to sit in judgment of people 
that we enjoy at criminal law comes from an us and a them, right, where we say, well, we're going to deter kinds of behavior, we're going to set certain kinds of deviant behavior aside and say no. But this really, this, this situation of an abducted child who's raised in this violence and then goes on to repeat this violence, I think really calls up a series of really hard questions. It would have been interesting had the court tried to legally think about what happens to those illegal acts, those atrocity crimes, when they're when they come from a set of learned behaviors, like in the case of Dominic Unwin, of a child who is abducted. The court does not do that at all. And, and in fact, I think in some ways, international criminal law is a bit trapped. Um, and this is something that I do a lot of research about and mention in my article. But this is, in my opinion, something that international criminal law has actually trapped itself into. It's, it's in a bit of a, it's backed itself into a corner in this way, is my opinion. But that's, I think, part of what made the case so interesting. It's not just the fact of it, the morality or the sentimentality, the emotional aspect of it, but it, the legal basis in which we, we consider what it is that he did. Indeed, because the court concludes that Ongwen was not mentally diseased or incapacitated. Um, mm. it, it describes him acting independently of Joseph Coney, the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army. Ongwen mm-hmm. was a member of the Lord's Resistance Army, and so on and so on. So there seems to be a complete dichotomy, a complete slicing down the middle, and a separation mm. of Ongwen, mm-hmm. the child soldier, and the adult, as we've already alluded to, but it's quite clear that this is a dichotomy that the court decided to take, as you've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And that's exactly what I mean when I say that international criminal law does not have a broad capacity to address these questions from a legal perspective. Because what we often say in criminal law, so if I, if I kill someone who's attacking me, that's a, that's a murder. I, maybe if I intend to kill them, that's a murder. But if they're attacking me, then that's, that's a legitimate defense to why it is I killed them. So the liability, the crime still exists, the murder, but my punishment is mitigated or taken away based on what we call the affirmative defense that I have while I was defending myself, right? And then we can ask, oh, did you need to kill the person to get away? Could you have run away instead, right? So there's a series of questions we can ask about the the method of defense I chose. But that's how the law usually addresses these kind of questions. First, we establish the we establish a certain kind of legal liability. Then we also have a legal category to contextualize that liability. But that's precisely what you don't have at international criminal law. And of course, there's a lot of really good reason for that. A lot of the, the theory behind international criminal law, the movement from tragedy to criminality, exists in responsibility, that we're going to insist that it is humans who commit atrocities, so it is humans that we are going to hold liable for those atrocities. And certainly for all of the people who were harmed by Dominic Unguin, either in himself or through the orders he gave by the organization he participated in, they, those people, those victims, are not less victims because he himself learned to do this as a child. They're still victims of the horrible acts. And there's a real power to that notion of international criminal law, which is that we look at the terrible act, we look at the atrocity, and then we find blame for it. And that's how we're going to try and deter these atrocities in the future. So that's what I mean when I say that it's really, it's in a sense backed into a corner, because if you start to contextualize international criminal law, you really risk losing a lot of its power. If I can tell you, well, I did this because I was ordered to do it, then suddenly a series of things which are clearly atrocities, people are just as dead when I'm finished, whether I I had a choice of being ordered or not, become something we can't punish. 
But what you see in international criminal law is, just as I write, that you have this idea of duress and mental incapacity, or incapacity rather. And those two ideas are, again, sort of forms of of affirmative defense. So, but it's a very, very limited spectrum of what it is that one might be able to say about a defendant to somehow differently look upon the liability of what it is that they're doing. And, and this really does not leave room for all of these potential defendants who find themselves in a series of no-win situations. And a series, there have been several people who've been writing also in the conversation a number of articles. If you go onto the conversation, you can click on other articles about Angwin and you can trace and see what people have been writing. But one of the conversations is not just that Angwin himself was a victim, but there's also a discussion of other children who were abducted who went on to not become successful commanders in the LRA, right? Other children who sought to get away, who didn't commit the same kind of violence. So there are still a series of interesting questions about personal responsibility and about choices. So I, I don't mean to suggest that it's that it's simple and that that Angwin should only be seen as a victim. But I do think it's interesting that we don't have the the level of complexity that we ideally would have to think about a a situation like this in the law itself. And and finally, something else comes out. Uh, You've uh, got a paragraph entitled New Legal Directions. And this, this is, I think, hugely significant, and that is the consideration of gender-based violence and sexual crime, which is often a vital component of uh, crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's, again, something where so people who've been watching the decision from sort of, I would say, a, a purely uh, legal perspective who are both, uh, many people point to the new role that victims are playing and the new centrality of victims in the process as something that's very legally exciting about this case. And then likewise, the same, the same question about sexual crimes, because one of the things that we've seen in international criminal law up to now is even though uh, sexual violence is a staple of conflict, sexual crimes are uh, harder to prove, they're uh, infrequently litigated, and when they are discussed, often responsibility uh, still seems to cling to the individual. So whereas with other crimes, with other forms of violence, if you were part of a group and this violence happened, then you can be found liable for that violence. But often with sexual crimes, courts will still demand a kind of a closer personal link, which again, from a, from a legal perspective, it's not clear why sexual violence would be different. So all that's meant that sexual violence is harder to prosecute, doesn't get prosecuted as often. And one of the things we see in northern Uganda, that one of the one of the real harms here was the, the non-consensual use of children, right? So that those sorts of sexual crimes really were, uh, they were a huge part of what harm occurred. So it's very important that the court recognize them. Professor Kirsten Bree Carlson, Associate uh, of International Law at the University of Denmark, talking to us about the ICC's uh, ruling against Dominique Ongwen, uh, a former Lords Resistance Army Ugandan, former child soldier. Lots and lots of issues arising over his guilty verdict. Professor Carlson, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Drive time on 91.3. Always on the cutting edge.